We'll hear argument next in Kerry versus Musladeen. Mr. Ott. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. This Court has never addressed the constitutionality of photo buttons worn by spectators during a criminal trial. The two closest decisions of this Court, Estelle v. Williams and Holbrook v. Flynn, established only a general rule that some courtroom practices may be so inherently prejudicial that they violate the defendant's right to a fair trial. Neither Flynn nor Williams Well, it went a little bit beyond that. I mean, the, the, the Justice Marshall announced not merely the possibility of inherent prejudice, but uh, he, he spoke in terms of practices that raise a, a risk uh, that improper factors will come into play in the jury decision. Isn't that the criterion? An unacceptable risk, Your Honor. That's the criterion, isn't it? Well, the, the, the test has been formulated different ways. Uh, in, in but that's the way he formulated it. That's the way the court in, in Flynn formulated it. In Flynn it did, but it also, uh, just a paragraph or so earlier, said that the only question we need to answer is whether this practice, and there the four courtroom uh, uniform guards, is so inherently prejudicial that it violates the defendant's right to a fair trial. We don't believe that those well, are material. Sure, that, that was the end point that they were reaching, and then he elaborated on that. Uh, by referring to the to the unacceptable risk that that improper considerations would come into play, and and it seems to me that the, if if you're going to talk about the the criterion or the test or the standard, however you want to describe it in Flynn, you you've got to get that latter point about unacceptable risk of of improper factors. Well, that certainly was a formulation of the test. If if and we can accept it as the formulation of the test, it it, it was accepted by the California courts below. Uh, they uh, attempted to apply that test. They announced the proper, uh, the correct, clearly established law of this court, and then proceeded to analyze the issue. Mm. Below, however, on federal habeas review, the Circuit Court of Appeals used its own circuit case to define clearly established law under EDPA. Instead of assessing the state court's application of a general rule, the circuit court narrowed this court's general rule into one that specifically condemned buttons. Instead of granting the state court wide leeway to apply this court's general rule, the circuit court created a narrow rule that would seemingly prohibit buttons in any any case. Well, I, I suppose if the Court of Appeals had case A, and it said, we interpret the Supreme Court rule to be as follows. Uh, it could then later say, uh, in case B, this is how we've interpreted the Supreme Court rule, and we're bound by case A. This is the elaboration we've given to it. And we have to find the state court, of course, isn't bound by what we do, but we're bound by what we do when we in, 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 review what the state court has decided. Well, Your Honor makes a distinction between a, a post-EDPA case and pre-EDPA cases. In a post-EDPA setting, uh, if the Circuit Court of Appeals is looking at its own post-EDPA case, post-AEDPA, EDPA case, which has said that this set of facts constitutes an unreasonable application of clearly established law, we don't disagree that stare decisis might might uh, come into play there. Uh, it doesn't mean that that first decision was correct, but we don't. But what happened here, in contrast, was a pre-EDPA decision that was used to define 
the clearly established law of this court, give it more detail such that the circumstances here fell outside of it. To, to it, apply uh, uh, an opinion of this court to particular circumstances and find that in the view of the Court of Appeals, it produces a certain result, is not necessarily to say that that is clearly established Supreme Court law. It just means it's their best guess as to how it comes out, right? That's correct. I mean, they're, they're forced to decide it one way or another. The Supreme Court opinion either means this or that. Uh, they're, they're not applying a clearly established uh, test to the Supreme Court, are they? Not by doing that. However, the Circuit Court of Appeals here expressly stated it was looking to its own circuit authority to define the law that is clearly established. It specifically stated that this case, that the state's decision is unreasonable in light of Norris. It specifically stated that the state court's decision could not reasonably be distinguished from Norris. And we're looking under EDPA at an unreasonable application of Supreme Court law. What do you do in a situation where you think the state court has incorrectly articulated Supreme Court law, but nonetheless reached the correct result? In other words, a correct understanding of established Supreme Court law would have led to a, the same result as their incorrect articulation of it. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, at first, the, the first thing to do would be look at the fair import. As this Court stated in Woodford v. Viscotti, look at the fair import of the decision. Now, I don't know if you're referring to that, the, the issue about uh, the arguable uh, misarticulation of the test at the end of, of the State Court's decision here, but the first question is to look at the fair import. And if the fair import is that the correct test was applied, then habeas relief does not lie. Right. My hypothetical, and we'll debate later whether it's this case or not, is let's say that the state court wrongly articulates Supreme Court law, but under the correct articulation, it leads to the same result. What, what happens in that case under EDPA? I believe that, that habeas relief should not lie. There, now, I've seen circuit courts treat it different ways. Some courts uh, will... Uh, decline to give deference and review it de novo. But I don't think Congress intended in enacting the ADPA that a state habeas or a state conviction should be overturned simply because of an accident in a statement or a formulation of the test, but the conviction is otherwise constitutional. Aren't you saying the answer to the Chief's question is that you would then review it de novo, but on de novo review you would sustain the conviction? If they came to the right result, yes, I believe so. I mean, I, if I understood the correction, uh, the, the question correctly, yes, you would not affirm, you would not sustain the conviction relying on EDPA. You'd say EDPA authorizes review, but on review we conclude that the, the defend the conviction was correct. That's what I understand the hypothetical to be. Yes. Uh, with a caveat that we're assuming that the, 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 the hypothetical is that the state court has misapplied, that the fair import is that it misapplied the, the holdings of this court. Correct. Well, it misarticulated them. I guess the question of application is, I mean, I assume they reached what we would regard as the correct result. Under the correct standard, they just articulated the wrong standard. And your answer, I take it, is that it would then be reviewed without ed pedeference. 
N no, Your Honor. Then I, I misunderstood the question. The, the, the deference would still apply if, if you can look at the decision as a whole and see that the correct standard was applied. If they have erroneously stated the standard, if the State Court erroneously stated the standard, but you can look to the decision as a whole and see that the correct standard was nevertheless applied, deference is still due. We're concerned why here you with, need the, with the court of the role, if any, that a circuit court, that opinions of courts other than this court have in determining whether law is clearly established. Do you exclude entirely from the province of what's proper for the federal court to consider any court of appeals, federal court of appeals decision? Yes, we do, Your Honor. So that the only thing, your argument is the only thing that's proper to look to are decisions of this court, and then if you don't have a case on all fours, as we have no buttons case, then that's the end of it? No, Your Honor. Uh, we, our position is that a federal habeas court may not look at all to state or circuit authority on the question of what's clearly established, only the holdings of this court and what appears on their face. If there is a general rule, such as here, the question moves to the reasonable application prong. And under that prong, because the rule is general, as this court stated in uh, Yarborough versus Alvarado, the more general rule, the more leeway there is. Relief can still lie under certain circumstances, but it's, it moves into a question of objective reasonableness of the state court's decision. Suppose all uh, of the, suppose there are five circuits, they're the only ones that looked at the issue, and they all say, we think the general rule of the Supreme Court is as follows. Isn't that entitled to some weight? Uh, you're not supposed to cite that when you go to a, the Sixth Circuit Court or when you go to the State Court? If, if Your Honor is speaking only to the clearly established prong, my answer would be no. Uh, if a Circuit Court says Jackson v. Virginia is clearly established law on sufficiency of the evidence, we have no dispute with that. But to redefine or shape this Court's holdings beyond the face of those holdings our position is that cannot be done with state or circuit law. Circuit law and state law may be relevant to the question of reasonable application, but not on the first prong. If, if a, a federal habeas court looks to circuit or state authority on the first prong of 2254 D1, the reasonable, reasonableness becomes a foregone conclusion. The two the two sections of the statute collapse into what is essentially de novo review, as, as what happened here. Once, for instance, the habeas court here decided that its own circuit authority required uh, or prohibited buttons, reasonableness was, was a foregone conclusion, even though it was addressed by the circuit. But in further response to your question, Your Honor, our position is that, that on the reasonable application prong, a federal habeas court may look to state and circuit cases. They are of varying relevance, but they should look to state and federal circuit cases equally, but not all of those cases have the same relevance. We have, there's the distinctions between pre-EDPA and, uh, and post-EDPA cases, and the distinction between whether those cases support or contradict the state court's opinion. 
So would there be any difference if this had been a post-EDPA, if this circuit precedent had been post-EDPA? There would be a difference, Your Honor. The — depending on the prong we're looking at, under — our argument would still be the same under — on the clearly established prong of 2254d1, that even if Norris was a post-EDPA case, that the circuit court could not look to Norris to define this Court's holdings. But Norris, if it were a post-EDPA case, would have more relevance on the reasonable application prong. There, stare decisis might come into play. It doesn't mean Norris was correct. It doesn't mean that the result reached by the circuit court of appeals in this case would be correct. But it would certainly be more relevant. Can you tell us — let's assume for a minute that this case were on direct review, that we don't have EDPA. What is the standard that should control whether there's an impermissible — an unacceptable risk that impermissible factors will be taken into account by the jury? Is that the test? That is — that is a test, the test, one of the formulations of it. I don't believe it materially differs from — our position is it doesn't materially differ from the general due process fair trial standard that applies in all cases. Well, but you should make it more specific for us. You say general due process. How does that work in this case? I want to know whether or not I can order or must order someone to remove a sign, a button, a piece of clothing. What's the test that I use? Your Honor, it's assessment — it's an assessment of all the circumstances. That if you're a trial judge — But, I mean, that doesn't — unless you want to go on, that doesn't help me. I just — we just tell all the judges in the country to assess all the circumstances and we say no more? No, Your Honor. The — let's take the impermissible factor test. A State court judge should look at the circumstances before him and determine whether he believes that there's an unacceptable risk of impermissible factors coming into play. Whether the practice at issue, whether it be buttons or ribbons or what have you, is so likely to prejudice this defendant or violate or infringe on his fundamental rights that we need to order them removed, not just as a matter of supervisory powers, but as a constitutional requirement. So it is a — it's a spectrum test, Your Honor, and it's essentially a totality test of the circumstances of the buttons, let's say, and there can't be a bright-line rule. The circumstances vary. Why couldn't there be here? I mean, at some point, at some point, I've seen every judge in this case say this is a thoroughly — not thoroughly, let me not exaggerate, but they say wearing buttons is a bad idea for obvious reasons. Now, at some point, if enough judges say that, each time they say, well, it's a bad idea, but we can't say in this case that it was so prejudicial or there's that inherent risk that it's unconstitutional. But at some point, if people begin enough and enough to say this is quite a bad idea to have buttons being worn in a courtroom, which is not a place for a demonstration, does it not become pretty clear, irrespective of exactly what opinions say what, that this is just very unfair and unconstitutional? Your Honor, my answer is no. As a supervisory matter, a State court can do whatever it wishes. A State — a State — under its State constitution, State statutes, State rules of court can do many things under its supervisory power or even State constitutional power. That is different altogether, however, from saying that all buttons 
violate the Constitution, which is different in turn from saying all buttons require habeas relief. The about banners, the, what would you do with banners? I beg your pardon? What would you do with banners? Would it make sense to say all banners are banned from the courtroom? I certainly think it would make a lot of sense. Banners? Yes. The signs, placards. Uh, I, Your Honor, I haven't seen a case involving banners. I imagine that the things I, I like think I, I think I know why. Because they, it, it affects the atmospherics of the trial. And, and likewise, we don't see all the button cases where the buttons have been precluded. Well, but also no, don't allow people to, to come into most courtrooms in tank shirts, and we don't allow people to, you know, to wear beanie hats. Uh, everything that is inappropriate for a courtroom is not necessarily inappropriate because it would, would prejudice the trial. Isn't that right? That's correct, Your Honor. Uh, Maybe that's why we don't allow banners, because a courtroom is not the place for banners. That's correct, Your Honor. Decorum should not be confused with Absolutely right. Suppose you think in this federal court, which we are, that that, uh, banners, uh, posters, and buttons are a thoroughly bad idea. Now, why? Not just because of decorum but because they introduce an extraneous factor into the judgment of the jury. And suppose I also think, I'm not saying I do, I'm trying this out, but uh, it's pretty hard to draw lines among buttons. It's pretty hard to draw lines among banners. And uh, it's the only way to guarantee fair trials in wholesale, is to have a wholesale rule on this. No buttons, no banners, no petitions, no posters. Uh, how would you explain, you just say the law just doesn't permit that? Well, Your Honor. Or what do you want to say about that? Because that is a concern I have. I understand, Your Honor. And, and this, this Court obviously has the power to uh, enact a, a prophylactic rule. That, uh, but a prophylactic rule covers many un, uh, unconstitutional as well as constitutional practices. And that a prophylactic rule requires, the prophylactic rule that might be enacted would require uh, preclusion of buttons does not mean that uh, all the buttons that uh, might come up are, are uh, necessarily prejudicial. Well, I'm, I'm not so sure. Uh, you, you think that we could uh, just say we're going to exercise our best judgment, not necessarily under the Constitution, just because it's a good idea, banners and buttons are hereby banned forever? We, we have the authority to just say that? Well, Your Honor, in this case, this case has, has this Court granted certiorari on a question of the application of the ADPA. So we're not asking, certainly not asking for, for that. Exploring, we're exploring initially what the rule ought to be. Uh, May I ask this question? Supposing we all thought that this practice in this particular case deprived the defendant of a fair trial, but we also agreed with you that EDPA prevents us from announcing such a judgment because we what if we wrote an opinion saying it's perfectly clear there was a constitutional violation here, but Congress has taken away our, our power to reverse it? Then a year from now, the same case arises. Could we follow our, could the district court follow our dicta, or could it, uh, would it be constrained to say we don't know what the Supreme Court might do? It could not follow this court's dicta under this court's statement in Williams v. Taylor that only the holdings, not the dicta of this court, uh, established clearly, clearly established Supreme Court authority. I believe that the rule, if there is going to be one, 
should be the rule that was applied here, a general rule of fundamental fairness considering the totality of the circumstances before the trial court. I think the rule works, and it worked in this case. Of course, you don't, need, you don't need to establish that rule, do you? You just need to establish that what the Supreme Court determined was not an unreasonable application of this Court's law. That's correct, Mr. Chief Justice. We're not asking for a, a new rule applicable to buttons. Uh, the, the reason we're here is because is of the Circuit Court's method in addressing this case and granting habeas relief. What if the button had said, uh, the three buttons had said, hang Musladen? Uh, would, would, would you say that there was not insufficient, that there was not sufficiently clear law from this court, uh, to find that practice, uh, unconstitutional under, under, uh, Justice Marshall's formulation? Your Honor, it wouldn't change the clearly established problem. We still have a general rule, but I think, uh, your instance is one that all judges would agree is so egregious that it falls within the, uh, the ambit of that. And would require habeas relief. That, what that was no, also within the ambit of what a, a mob-dominated atmosphere? Or your answer to Justice Souter was, Edpa, we, was that this would require a reversal, even under it. Is that your answer? I, I can concede that. Yes, Your Honor. That and, and, that, and that, just we both want to know why you say that. Well, the question is objective reasonableness, and. We don't dispute that some circumstances may present such a situation that no one, no judge is going to disagree that the situation, that the state court, if it denied relief on, on the three buttons you pose, was unreasonable. Okay, but what are the, imper- look, getting, getting the formulation, what are the impermissible factors uh, as to which a risk is raised by wearing the hang Musladen button? What are those factors? Hang Moose Laden button, uh, the, the impermissible factor first is the explicit message. Hang Moose Laden, convict him. It's urging the, the jury to convict him and that, that Well, what's wrong with that? Him. The prosecutor's going to get up and, and urge the jury to convict them. What, 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 what is wrong with it on the button? Well, what, what risk does the button raise that the prosecutor's argument does not? That's what we're getting at. It's an outside influence, Your Honor. Oh. It's, an, it's, a, it's, it's an influence coming from How different is it from the victim's family sitting in the second row behind the prosecution every day of the trial? And, uh, I mean, I'm — the the hypothetical correctly focuses on the question, at least for me, on whether or not you can have specific applications of general rules that are clearly established. I'm just not sure your agreement with it is — is — Advisable because it seems to me that simply, ha- I mean, how many people have to wear these buttons? If one person shows up with a hang Musladen button, does that mean is it's a mob-dominated trial? No, Your Honor. My what I the, the point I meant to make was that we're not urging that relief can never lie because there's a general rule of application. Right. It's it's a spectrum, and I would I, I'm not conceding that that the example necessarily requires habeas relief because a whole host of circumstances that we wouldn't know about it, for instance, whether it was ever seen. Uh, we have cases people don't see. Well, let's, let's assume simply the, the facts that we have in this case, which I thought I was doing. Maybe I wasn't clear about it, but the button's different. Instead of having a picture uh, of, of the victim, uh, it's got the statement, hang Miss Laden. It's, it's worn every day by three members of 
his family uh, who sit behind the prosecution table uh, within the sight of the jury. Assume those facts. Uh, would habeas relief be required under the general rule? I don't think it would be required. I think it would be reasonable to say that habeas relief must lie. There are, very, there, there are many, there are much isn't, fewer inferences isn't, isn't that that a way of that. saying that it's required? Should, no. should a grant, look, should a court grant habeas relief on my facts? I Not necessarily, Your Honor. It, 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 there, are, there, well, as Mr. Chief Justice pointed out, three family members of a victim sitting in the front row, buttons or not, the buttons don't add add little, if anything, to the three victim, uh, victims' family members sitting there grieving through a trial. They add very little, for instance, in this case. I, I don't know whether they're grieving or not, but I, I certainly know the sentiment that they are trying to convey to the jury if they wear a button that says, hang Miss Laden. Your Honor, I'd submit that the sentiment is obvious to the jury. They, I, I would submit that the, that sentiment is obvious to the jury, that a juror — They may not want him uh, hung. Yeah, they may not even believe in the death penalty. Right. I, I uh, wish you hadn't said that, because I, I had thought that one of the things that made this case uh, um, uh, leaning in your direction is the fact that uh, merely having a picture of their loved one on the button doesn't convey the message, you know, hang the defendant or even convict the defendant. It just conveys at most to the jury, you know, this is uh, — we have been deprived of someone we love. You should take this matter very seriously and consider the case carefully. Uh, it's an important matter to us, and therefore you ought to deliberate carefully. I don't know that it means anything more than that. Your Honor, I, I, didn't, I did not intend at all to suggest that that was a message from those buttons. What I meant to say was the buttons add very little because I think a juror understands what a victim button said, you know, convict what's his or hang, hang what's his name. That's quite you're, you're you're equating that with the buttons in this case, and I don't think the buttons in this case say hangs so and so or even convict so and so. They just say we have been deprived of a loved one. This is a terrible matter. Please, jury, consider this case carefully. That's all it necessarily says. That's, if any message, what the buttons conveyed in this case. I was only speaking to the difference between the buttons that Justice Souter posed as, as putting forth a more explicit message. Okay. Assuming that explicit message, should habeas relief be granted in my hypothetical case? Not necessarily, Your Honor. Why? No. Because in your case, I don't think that that message necessarily, I think it's reasonable for a state court to conclude that those buttons did not add much to, if anything, to the presence of Is it reasonable for a state court to say that three family members sitting in a courtroom within sight of the jury for whatever number of days the trial went on, saying at the guilt stage, hang so-and-so, is exposing the jury to a proper influence that it should and may consider in deciding guilt or innocence? Your Honor, we could concede that for this case. Okay. But Don't you concede that, of course, that would be uh, exposing the jury to an improper influence in the Hang Musladen case? I thought some states uh, uh, require that the uh, relatives of the victim be allowed to uh, make their case to the jury 
for for harsh penalty. I I, I don't know that that's necessarily uh, inappropriate to know that the uh, that that's at sentencing yeah. after conviction. Yeah. My my hypo is is at the guilt stage, not the sentencing stage. At the guilt stage, that's right. Uh, the, the California statutes do require that victims' families be able to. Uh, make a statement at sentencing. They okay. also require that the victim's family, if the victim is not alive, be present at uh, the guilt phase of the trial, at, during at, the guilt phase But of the at trial. the guilt stage, is there, any, is there any question in your mind that allowing the family members to display this message to a jury throughout the trial at the guilt stage is raising a risk, an unacceptable risk, that the jury will consider improper influences in reaching its verdict? Is there any question? Your Honor, your, your buttons might raise an impermissible That's risk. my hypothetical. My buttons. Hang Ms. Laden. Is there any question about the risk of improper influence on my hypothetical? Not this case, my hypothetical. They do, but it might still be reasonable for a state court to conclude otherwise. And it was certainly reasonable for the state court here to conclude that three simple buttons bearing only a photo did not convey any message of blame, uh, guilt, anything other than grief of this family. Uh, if I may reserve the rest of my time. Thank for you, Mr. Ott. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Firmino. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. I want to direct this Court's attention to the State Court opinion, which appears at 55A to 78A of the uh, appendix to the petition for writ of certiorari in this case. I want, Your Honors, to take a look at that opinion. It's 25 pages in length, but the portion of the opinion dealing with the buttons issue is two pages in length. Of those two pages, all but a few sentences deal directly with the Norris case. I believe it's at roughly page 72A uh, in there, 73A of the appendix. All but three sentences deal with the Norris case. The Attorney General has said in its briefing that the court below teased out the particular reference to the buttons, that it carefully parsed the opinion, that it gave a tangentious analysis. This is the description of the Attorney General. Nothing could be further from accuracy. These two pages discuss Norris head-on. It is the elephant in the room, if you will. The court below could not have. It would have been impossible for the court below to write this opinion without addressing the Norris case head-on. I thought the key sentence in this is he says the simple photograph of Tom Studer on a button, which I don't know what the size is. Nobody's told him what the button is about. Nobody's put for the judge a picture of it. Nobody showed him what the button is. So he says, simple photograph of Tom Studer was unlikely to have been taken as anything other than the normal grief occasioned by the loss of a family member, period. Now, what else is there to say? That's the Court's conclusion. And I, I, it's pretty hard for me. I, I looked for the button. I couldn't even find the button in the record. I don't even know what this looks like. It's a, it's a button. Somebody later must have said two inches to four inches. I don't know who said that. I don't know how the judge could have known that. The button isn't in the record. So why isn't it just a normal sign of grief, unlikely to influence anybody? That's, that's what they said. 
You, uh, Justice Breyer, I think that the, the — In this case. That, that's correct. And, and I think that the, the, the Court — it's correct that the record before the State Court of Appeals was inadequate um, to address or to answer the question. But I think what, where the Court erred uh, is in adding and grafting on an additional element. It's, it, it goes beyond that sentence that, that Justice Breyer, you focused on. I think it's that the, it's the element of branding. It's that, that, this, that this wearing of the buttons, uh, in a sense, branded the defendant in the eyes of the jurors. That goes on frequently in an opinion. I've been known to do that myself. And I say, this court over here says it's a da-da-da, and I say, sure isn't that. Well, what is it? And that language came from one of our opinions, didn't it, the branding language? Yes, that was quoting Holbrook and Flynn. That's correct, Justice Ginsburg. So uh, Ginsburg. you can't fault the court for just saying it isn't that. But, Mr. But, our court said it isn't that. That's correct, but I, I believe that it's not part of the test. It was that the branding language, as in, in Justice Brennan's um, in, his, in Justice Brennan's dissent, was not part of the test articulated well, by. Repeated the later in, in, in opinions for the for the for the majority, I think. That's correct. Later that's cases, correct. so that's I, correct. Don't just just put it in Brennan's dissent. I don't understand your your point about the state court focusing on Norris. The question under EDPA is still whether or not it's an unreasonable application of Supreme Court law. Well, in this instance, much has been said about the opinion and the carefully written opinion of the state court. But the, the portion of the opinion that focuses on this issue is, as I said, roughly two pages in length and deals almost entirely with Norris. Norris was the contrast case for the Court of Appeals. And but it was it, used. It, it here, it, I mean, you agree that the California court has as much authority to say what federal law is as the Ninth Circuit, right? They're on a par. The Ninth Circuit decisions in no way bind the Supreme Court of California. Is that, that so? That's correct. So that this state court of appeals chose to be respectful to the Ninth Circuit to consider what it had said doesn't sound to me like a very strong argument. Well, Justice Ginsburg, I would respectfully disagree. I think that the um, — were this, this discussion of Norris to be a much longer discussion um, — or, excuse me, part of a much longer discussion, that might be true. But its entire focus was Norris. It used Norris um, by way of negative explication to show that the facts before it didn't fall within the rule as derived from uh, Williams and Flynn. And I think that goes beyond respect to the Ninth Circuit. I think it took — the case, it grappled with it, it decided that it was uh, different than Norris. And I think that there would have been no way for the court below to have looked at the facts of this case without addressing Norris. What, what was the, uh, what in your opinion, this is why, uh, as you can see, I'm concerned about buttons. I think they're probably a problem. I think all judges are concerned about them. But then I think about this particular case, and I look at that single sentence. It was unlikely to be taken as a sign of anything other than normal grief. I think suppose this had been a different case. Suppose the defense in this case was the defendant Smith didn't pull the trigger. It was an unknown person called Jones. Then if I were on the jury, I would look out, see the buttons, and I'd say, hmm, the family thinks it was Smith. Otherwise, they wouldn't be here with those buttons. I could think that. But this isn't that case. This is a case where everyone thinks your client pulled the trigger. 
The only question is whether the family's son came at him with a machete. So when I look at the buttons, I'd think, sure, they don't think the son came at him with a I mean, they don't think that. that he's their son. What would you expect them to think? So that's why I thought that they are saying that sentence in this case. In this case, it would be taken as a sign of grief and nothing more. Well, Justice Breyer, that is certainly a plausible reading of the state court opinion. However, I think the, the, you've also identified what the problem with this. It's, it's the risk, not the reality. And that's why we have to look beyond the facts of this case and look to the rule as derived from the Williams and Flynn case, as I think the court below properly did. And, and in, in doing so, uh, in applying it to this case, I think you, you have to do away with this kind of courtroom behavior. It is simply not acceptable. Um, it is not acceptable to wear any, any buttons. Which is fair trial. Any, any courtroom practice that causes an impermissible risk that the juries, uh, that the jury would come to a conclusion based on a factor not introduced at trial. Is inherently prejudicial. I mean, most, I don't think a a typical jury will understand that the the victim is going to have a family and they're going to be sorry that he's dead and they might be there at his trial and they may not like the person accused of murdering their, their son. That's not, that's sort of like in every case. That's not, the buttons don't seem to add much uh, to what the jury will derive from seeing the family seated uh, behind the prosecution bench. I, I agree with, with Mr. Chief Justice up into the point of it's not different wearing the buttons. I think that you add the buttons and you are creating, you're doing it essentially what the rule derived from both Williams and Flynn teaches us is wrong. But in Williams and Flynn and all the cases that we have had, whatever way they went, it was always the government requiring a defendant to do something, wear prison clothes appear in court with shackles. And in the case that went for the government, the extra offices in the courtroom, we haven't had a case, have we, where it's spectator conduct as opposed to government conduct that's being attacked. Uh, that is correct, Justice Ginsburg. There isn't a case that is that where the state state action element, if you will, is not present. However, I would posit that in this case, where you have a judge, a trial judge, who uh, denies a, a a lawyer's motion, that you have implicit in that state action that the court has endorsed the practice. But certainly goes beyond where our precedent leaves off. That is, we are dealing with direct impositions by government in a way that poses an unacceptable risk of prejudice to the defendant. That's correct. Yes, and you're having the judge say that you can't wear certain signs, you can't make certain demonstrations. Uh, if, if the family were there and, they, and, and uh, one of the members of the family was, was sobbing, uh, tears coming out of her eyes, I, uh, the, the, much, 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 has much more impact than a button. 
It, 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 and it, it might, but that kind of court behavior by a courtroom spectator can be controlled by a trial judge if, when it occurs. If it's spontaneous, it can be controlled. Um, a rule that spectators aren't allowed to emote would be implausible, um, it would be impractical. We're not talking here today about um, controlling the emotions of spectators. We're, con- we're talking about an impermissible factor like a message or the risk of a message. Yeah, but there, there, there is a First Amendment uh, problem when you're dealing with uh, activities of uh, people other than the prosecution, people other than the state who is bringing this prosecution. Th- there's no question that there's a First Amendment issue So that there, makes it a different case. It makes it very hard to say, well, the Supreme Court's already decided this matter. Well, in, in the First Amendment context, though, there's a balancing test that needs to be uh, employed, and you can't it, — it, it Oh, sure, it may come out the way you — may come out the way you want, but it's hard to say that the Supreme Court, any Supreme Court case, bears upon it when, when we haven't had a case that involves weighing the First Amendment right of the, of the, of the people in the courtroom to uh, wear buttons or — well, I believe that Mr. Oh, Mr. Cohen in New Hampshire and wearing his uh, sign regarding the draft. Oh, that's, that's against you. I, I understand yeah. that, but. <laughs> but, but if it's this reason, put your, suppose, hypothetically, I, I were to think, look, the rule should be no buttons. No buttons, no signs, no banners. A courtroom is a place of fair trial not a place for a demonstration of any kind. Now, if I were to think that, and I also were to think it's just too difficult to figure out case by case whether there is or is not an improper influence, suppose I thought both of those things. Now, you've heard, quite rightly, the other side says, one, you're supposed to decide whether this was clear in the law. Two, if you're worried about the future, you can't lay down a rule that's clear in the law either because of A, EDPA, and B, the case that, that was cited, which said uh, it's holdings that count, not dicta. All right? You write for me the words I'm supposed to put on paper to achieve your position. Justice Breyer, I think that the, the rule derived from the Williams and Flynn cases is that courtroom courtroom behavior that creates an unacceptable risk that impermissible factors have or have caused a jury's verdict to be based not solely on evidence introduced at trial is inherently prejudicial, and and unless it advances some important state interest, some compelling state interest, like the uh, concern that I believe Justice Ginsburg raised about the um, forcing um, a defendant to appear in prison garb or the shackling cases. That rule, I think, allows um, the opinion in this case of the court below to not violate the, the prescriptions of the ADPA. I think that's clear. I think what the court below did was essentially apply the rule uh, that I just uh, discussed. And I think if so, what about what if the issue was you know, mourning I mean, in the trials? being held and the, the families appear and they're all in black because uh, they're still in mourning. Does that violate this clearly established rule? I, I think you're getting 
the, Mr. Chief Justice, I think the hypothetical gets closer to, to it as well. I think a, a, a defendant's, excuse me, a victim's family wearing, appearing in court every day wearing black gets closer to the kind of message import. Again, the risk, not the reality, that this case is, that, that the court below was concerned with. No, my, my question is under EDPA. Uh, if the state court said, you know, I'm not going to keep the family out even in, in mourning, that would violate the clearly established rule that you've just articulated? Yes. Even if, even if it didn't, though, um, I, I, I suppose you could draw a line between people who are doing what they naturally do, uh, and some people do wear mourning, uh, and, and some people will come into a courtroom and be reminded of the person who died and, and, and sob. Uh, but in this case, they're, they're going out of their way to do something that people in mourning do not normally do. That's correct. Uh, and, and so you've, you've got, I think you've got a stronger argument here. What, what do you, what do I, um, no, go ahead. No, go on. I was going to say, I, the, the, the problem that I have uh, in, in this case uh, is, is that, um, number one, uh, I, I, I view the wearing of the buttons as I just described it as something that is abnormal uh, and, and something that, is intended to, presumably, to get the jury's attention. I don't know why otherwise they would be doing it. Uh, and from whatever source, we do know that the button was at least two inches wide and maybe larger, so it's reasonable to suppose that the jury saw it and, and understood perfectly uh, that, that these were people who were, were raising, a, in, in effect, an issue of sympathy. I can understand that, and under the general rule, uh, out, of, out of Williams and Flynn, uh, it seems to me as though there's a pretty darn good argument for saying, yes, an unacceptable risk has been raised of emotionalism in the jury's uh, deliberations uh, as, as opposed to dispassionate consideration of courtroom evidence. What, however, do I make of the fact that not one single court uh, has ever reached that conclusion uh, and uh, you know, as, as, a, as a constitutional matter, uh, it, it, am, am I in the position of, of sort of being Jim in, in they're all out of step but Jim? I'm, 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 I'm raising a question about my own, uh, my own judgment in relation to the fact that no other court seems to have come to that conclusion. What, what do you think I should make of that? I think it is a factor to consider in the court's analysis. However, I think the facts of this case are unique precisely because this typically doesn't — we don't get this far because most trial judges don't allow this kind of conduct. But there have been — haven't there been court decisions that have held that buttons didn't compromise a fair trial right? That's, that's correct. Yeah. So yes. in, in assessing the reasonableness of the California Supreme Court's decision — uh, how could we say federal court law was clearly established when other courts, considering our precedent, have gone the other way? Because I think that under — I think that this court, looking at the contrary to prong of the analysis, would — can come to a conclusion that um, the court — that the state court's decision um, wasn't — getting ahead of myself. I think the, the court can properly, in looking at it from a contrary to analysis, 
come to the conclusion that, even with that body of case law, that the uh, State Court um, got it wrong, um, that it misapplied the clearly established law of this Court. You don't want to put your uh, — hang your hat on the contrary to prong, though, do you? It's an, your argument, I thought, was an unreasonable application argument. I, I, th- I think it's both, Mr. Chief Justice. I think it's both. Um, I think I don't, I don't need to hang my hat on a contrary to, because I think under either prong. Well, but there is no — as Justice Ginsburg pointed out, we've never even had a case involving spectators. Uh, it's just — so there's, it's not contrary to clearly established law. We have a s- cases stating the general principle on which you rely, so maybe it's an unreasonable application, but contrary to seems an awful stretch. I, I, I wouldn't go as, Mr. Chief Justice, I would not go as far as an awful stretch, but I would think that we, under the unreasonable application prong, we certainly win. Um, I think that there is also an argument under the contrary, too. The, the record uh, is confusing, at least as I read it. Please correct me if I'm wrong. How, on the showing of how many days this button was worn. Is it, is, A, is it clear from the record how many days the button was worn? It is not. It is not clear at all from the record how many days. So it may have been for just one day of the trial. It may have been, but according to the declarations that were submitted uh, in the petition for collateral review, um, those are petition, those are declarations of the uh, trial counsel and of um, respondent's mother. Um, it is uh, that they were worn on multiple days by several members of the family and that the buttons were anywhere from two to four inches in diameter. And where, that's the, in the record. Where does it say that? And those declarations appear. Excuse me. They're in the joint appendix. These were declarations filed with the United States District Court in habeas? Uh, They were filed, actually, as part of the state collateral review proceedings. They were filed with the state habeas. And it it appears that they are uh, at the JA 6 and 8. Where does it say in there that the buttons were worn every day? If if I did, I'm sorry, that question. It says that the, the family members were there every day. That's for correct. many days. It doesn't say they wore the buttons every day, though, unless I'm missing. No, and that, Justice Alito, if I said that, I misspoke. I was trying to say that the record is not clear as well, to the frequency. There was a time when the trial judge said, stop. It Was there not? Um, there, he, he initially denied the motion. Correct. But I thought that there was a time in the course of the trial when he told the family members to stop wearing the buttons. I don't believe so, Justice Ginsburg. I think that they were never admonished not to wear them, um, but that they that the original ruling of, of the trial judge stood as far as uh, the wearing of the buttons was concerned. Right. In his opinion on the denial of rehearing, Judge Kleinfeld on the Ninth Circuit made the point that at, at criminal trials, and I suppose at other trials, it's an accepted feature of the proceeding that there are going to be spectators who identify with one or the other party. There may be relatives of the defendant in the criminal case. There may be relatives of the victims. And it's apparent from their behavior what they think about the case and which side should win. And that's sort of a baseline that has to be accepted in judging not whether wearing buttons is good as a uh, — whether we would think it would be good if we were announcing a court rule, but whether — there's a violation of due process. Do, do you accept that? 
Um, Justice Alito, I do, as far as it goes, accept that as a baseline. I think um, it's it, Judge um, Bea, in, in separate dissent, likens it to a family wedding and says we all know who is here for which party. That th- we have no quarrel with. So, that. what is the, it about these particular buttons that's reflected in the record that shows that it goes significantly beyond what would be inferred just from that? rather common feature of trials. I think in looking at the rule, again, derived from Williams and Flynn, we don't have to go there. Um, it's the risk, not the reality. I don't know what could be inferred. Uh, we don't know what was in the jurors' minds as they saw those buttons. Um, but the point is that it could affect the outcome. It is an, imper- an impermissible factor that causes um, the, the, the possibility that the jurors' verdict is based on something other than the evidence. Why is there a greater risk? Why do the buttons convey, uh, involve a greater risk than the kind of behavior that Judge Kleinfeld was referring to? Because you can imagine as a juror, jurors are very attentive during trials, that they look out into the audience and they see in the jury box, I mean, out in the audience, a group of people wearing buttons. What are those buttons? What, what's on there? What's the point of — there's a degree of scrutiny that's naturally going to occur by an attentive juror. Let, that's really the issue. Let's it's assume risk. risk of what? That's, that's what I, I, I'm puzzled by. Let's assume that the buttons were big enough that they could recognize that the buttons were the face of the, of the, of the deceased who, who, uh, for whose murder the, 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 the trial was about. Uh, let's assume all that. What, what risk — is that it's you know dur- during sentencing i can understand uh oh that he caused so much grief to so many people once we found him guilty we should sock him with a with a with a stiff sentence but during the guilt trial i mean i i see gee his fa- the the victim's family loved him a lot this guy must be guilty I, that doesn't follow at all in the guilt phase I don't, I don't see how that can have any effect on the, on the jury. Well, uh, Justice Scalia, I think it's, it's, it's the, a risk of a factor that is not subjected to adversarial testing. It is the possibility that it could have an impact. That I don't see don't... the possibility. You, you tell me that. Here you have. Is there a real, a real possibility that a jury is going to say, since this man's, this victim's family loved him so much, this guy must be guilty? But, th- but that's only one possible message of this button. Um, and again, that's, that's where I'm contrasting the risk versus the reality. It's that it could be any message that's sent. Well, but do, you, do you have to depend on there being a message? Isn't, isn't it enough if there is, is an influence that is conveyed? I mean, what, what I thought the problem was, uh, was that there was, as a result of the obtrusive wearing of the button, that, that it created a, a risk simply of an emotional approach uh, to the determination of guilt or innocence. The jurors are more likely to feel sorry for the family members sitting there a few feet away from them. Perhaps they, they may be more likely to feel sorry for the victim, but certainly for the family members. And, and it would be that improper influence of emotionalism as opposed to a particular message uh, that is the problem here, isn't? Isn't? Do you? I, I don't disagree. Would you accept with, that? that I do accept that, and I don't need to rely on a message. I, I would agree with the 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 argument that you've advanced. Okay. The. I, I think it is important here to look at the fact that no party in this case 
um, that the state has not advanced that this is a practice that should be endorsed or adopted. Um, it is clear that everyone involved has had a concern with the wearing of buttons or uh, any other kind of introduction into the proceeding that would otherwise uh, not be subject to meaningful adversarial testing, and I think that's the problem in this case. Um, and I do believe if you look closely at the state court opinion in this case, you will see that the court below's opinion was uh, correct, that they uh, did not tease out of the opinion or parse or apply any kind of tangentious reading um, when you look at exactly the, what the state court decided. Well, that's just because we haven't had a First Amendment case yet. I mean, we, we, we just have parties arguing uh, in the context of the criminal trial for the defendant, for the state. Let's wait till the ACLU brings a case about people who want to wear buttons in, in court. Then you're going to have people arguing. People ought to be able to wear buttons, just as they can wear a shirt uh, that says blip the draft. Uh, but this court, I think, could craft an opinion that addresses that concern without, um, without the need for simply awaiting that day. Counsel, I'm not sure you're right that nobody was concerned about the I mean, no, nobody, everybody thought the practice was wrong. I don't think the trial judge did. The trial judge said he saw no possibility of prejudice. I, I, and I misspoke. You're, you're right, Justice Stevens. He, the trial judge did, yeah. did reach that conclusion. If there are no other questions, I would close. Thank you, Mr. Firmino. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Ott, you have uh, one minute remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. If the Court has no further questions, I would submit this matter. Thank you, Mr. Ott. Thank the you. case is submitted.